Um, so I'm going to speak um, largely from my perspective and experience of working for over a decade um, with trade unions campaigning for flexible work. Um, by that I mean though my background is uh, working on equality and working on family friendly rights. Um, and so when we talk about flexible work, um, particularly the sort of women's committees, equality committees within the trade union movement, when we're putting out our demands for more access to flexible work, what we're really talking about is a variation from a standard full-time norm um, in order to increase access to the labour market and better opportunities to progress um, within work, the workplace. Um, I think it's in recent years, um, over the time actually that I have been working on these issues, I have frequently come up against the increasing flexibility in the labour market um, and have spoken in trade union forums where um, like to large groups of male dominated workplaces where you mention flexible work and they react negatively because we are actually talking in many ways about two different things. Um, but I think the confusion has, has arises, still arises frequently. Um, and so what I wanted to talk about today is um, kind of what we really mean by flexible work, what our campaign for flexible work has achieved, the limitations of it, and all of the other things that we actually really mean when we're talking about flexible work for workers. Um, because when you unpick it, and the more work I've done with very many different groups of workers in different sectors, it's not really variation in working hours so much. It's some variation to accommodate um, family and caring responsibilities, most often increasingly disability, um, in, you know, trying to improve uh, longevity in the workplace, um, reduce stress uh, in the workplace and create more sort of sustainable um, careers, working lives. Um, and key to that is also a number of other things um, which I'll come on to, like actually security, predictability of working hours, um, ability to get time off when needed. Um, so I was struck uh, a few years ago as well. I was um, under the coalition. Um, I was invited to represent the TUC on a group that Biz and DWP set up to promote flexible working in the private sector. Um, and we started off in our first meeting, it was a, a working group um, that included representatives from business, campaigners, it was chaired by the um, chief executive of Working Families, which is the charity I was involved with for many um, years, and CBI and others were represented on it. And uh, we agreed that actually it would be important to be clear about what we meant as the first step, this group coming together from different perspectives. The civil servants went away and, and produced a kind of one-sider on what do we mean by flexible working and the benefits of it. Um, and uh, I looked at it quite late in the day after a few other people had made comments, and I was quite shocked that I was the only person who picked up on the fact that they were promoting zero hours contracts was included as an example of flexible work, of something that, that was positive for, for working parents and carers, which is what we were mainly concerned about. Um, 
And also when there was that initial expansion and, and sort of more attention being given to uh, the expansion of zero hours contracts, I remember Vince Cable, who was then business secretary, recognizing that yes, there was abuse of them um, and that they were going to investigate this. But he also said, for many people, they offer a welcome flexibility to accommodate childcare which also was alarm bells to me, because at the same time, you just thought, just please come and talk to some of the women carers, some of the women hospitality workers, um, retail workers who often aren't on zero hours contracts, but they're on very short hour contracts of less than eight hours a week. Um, and we did, at the TUC actually, we did um, a series of case, a report with a series of case studies of women who were, and the impact of increasing casualization. And the theme that came out throughout that is just how difficult it is to be a working parent and organise childcare with complete insecurity in your working hours, your income, not knowing what's, what's happening with your tax credits from week to week, um, and organising childcare. And there was one really memorable one of a social care worker who cared passionately about the people that she, she looked after, so never wanted to let them down. Um, but she said, you know, the number of times that she was letting down her own children and she was, like, leaving her young children with her 70-odd-year-old neighbour next door because she just had to go out and she felt like she was constantly torn um, in what, what she was doing. Um, I should also say at the moment, hearing stories in my experience at, at the BMA as well of... Um, just how difficult it is for many doctors with women, young women doctors with children um, in being able to organise childcare and actually having to over-purchase over childcare. They're having to buy a full-time nursery place um, for as many hours as they can because they don't know what their rotors are going to be or they, they might be expected to work longer than they are. Um, so I hope I've got across that it's, it's not just um, flexibility, and I think there's common ground in, in a lot of what, what we're going to say. Obviously, there are times when the two can coincide, and um, you know, I know personally, uh, um, as a mum, lots of women I met while I was on maternity leave and when my children were very young, of women who gave up permanent employment to become self-employed or to become freelance. Um, and that was a positive choice for them at the time, and it did give them the flexibility to accommodate their caring responsibilities. But speaking to quite a few of them, you know, particularly a few years on now, um, you know, they do have concerns about pensions. They do feel stressed about the insecurity and the constant pressure to find work. They still feel it was the right choice for them, but one of the reasons they did that was because they couldn't get the flexibility in permanent or the accommodation in their permanent jobs. Um, so uh, that's another sort of key, key thing to bear in mind. And I think, you know, we see as well the expansion in um, self-employment um, and in the older workforce as well. And I think that's quite often too, the inability um, to get kind of appropriate, you know, flexible work um, when people are older and it can accommodate caring responsibilities or, or disability. And, and you know just or a lack of desire to continue working at the pace in which uh, the standard often demands um, so to ref I wanted also to reflect back on on where we've particularly got with our sort of campaign for flexible work um, and what 
the main policy intervention, the right to request flexible working, has delivered for us. Um, so it's been sort of 14 years now, I think, since we've had the, the right to request flexible working. Um, I'm in the time that I've um, been working in this area, and as I said, working with a wide variety of, of people in different workers in different sectors. I can see benefits. Um, I do think uh, it changed the conversation in lots of workplaces. I do think it, it, it empowered people to have that conversation. Um, you know, I, I think there was almost an expectation in lots of workplaces when women go on maternity leave now that they are going to have some discussion on before they return to work about maybe reducing their hours. I, I remember personally coming back from maternity leave and working full-time and intending to come back full-time and being struck by how many people said, oh, what days do you work? Like There is this assumption that you're, you're going to have that, that choice and, and flexibility. But I'm also aware that it has not delivered for many workers. The, the, the workers who are most likely to report that there are flexible working options or a variety of practices available to them in their workplace are the highly skilled, the managerial and professional, um, and those in unionised workplaces, which I think reminds us how important it is to view this through the sort of power relationship in, in workplaces. Um, those who have high skills um, and, and more level, or unions to support them um, have a lot more leverage to get what they want. Um, the, also, if you, if you look at... Um, one thing I want to pick up on as well is if you look at the, the survey data and that the Biz Work-Life Balance Survey, but also like CBI have done various surveys and other groups, when they, they ask employers um, about the requests they get and how many requests are met, it's always over 90%, which also suggests this is like a really uh, positive um, intervention that's happened here. Um, but if you ask um, people about those people who didn't make a request, why they didn't make a request. Two-fifths of them say it's because they thought it was going to be rejected. So that also suggests that it's those who, who feel in a strong position who are most likely to make a request. And because they're in a strong position, it's very likely to be agreed to. But there's this big unmet demand of workers who just don't feel em empowered to ask. Um, we're also... Uh, over the time that we've had the right to request flexible working, um, I think, as I said, it, it's one of the things that's helped improve um, women's employment and particularly maternal employment. And now, if you're a mother um, with dependent children, you're almost as likely to be in work as a woman without dependent children. Maternal employment is the part of women's employment that has really grown um, in recent decades, and that's positive. But there are still massive gender inequalities within um, within the workforce. Um, women, significant numbers of women still work part-time, and part-time work is still concentrated in lower-paid jobs. Um, if you look at, for example, the managerial professional category, it's about similar proportions of full-time men and women are in that category. Dramatically shrinks when you look at proportion of part-time women who are in ma managerial or professional jobs. And, you know, part-time women, work, uh, women workers are still predominantly in the five Cs, um, the cleaning, catering, caring, cashiering, clerical work. 
Um, also, as IFS highlighted last year, they did um, a really good piece of analysis of what lies behind the gender pay gap, and they really picked up that um, it is linked to, to caring responsibilities and particularly to women working part-time after having children. Um, and it's not a dramatic drop, so they go part-time and their pay drops. Um, it is that they miss out on progression year on year that full-time workers get um, after having children. Um, and I think, to some extent, the, the right to request flexible working, um, it's kind of created a mummy track. It's, it has helped keep women in work, particularly after they've had kids. Um, but there is this perception that, well, you know, you've got other priorities now. Um, and they're often overlooked. Um, or sometimes, as well, there's, there's the big issue of um, which, um, time-wise, um, has charity um, has really sort of shone a light on is the issue of kind of quite a stagnant labour market for women with caring responsibilities who, who want to work part-time um, or need flexibility because so few jobs are advertised, good quality jobs are advertised as being available on a part-time or flexible basis. They did an analysis of job ads and found only 6% of jobs that were advertised as being available on reduced hours or with flexible working opportunities um, with a full-time equivalent salary of 20,000 or more. Um, so it's still really difficult to get quality part-time work job opportunities and it's still the case that you know, you can ask, it's kind of given to you once you've been in a workplace and you're trusted. Um, but if you were to lose that job, and I know so many women as well who kind of go, I can't leave because I can't, I can't get what I've got here, the working hours arrangements that I've got here. And if they do leave and they're then looking for part-time work, it's often then a massive step down um, that they, they're having to take. Um, so I think one of the things that, that the right to request flexible working hasn't done and we really need to do um, in terms of permanent employment, um, the permanent jobs that are available, is uh, shift the full-time standard norm. Um, and I think as well in recent years, I've particularly seen it in the public sector, I can see it in my current job, um, the full-time workers, the expectations of them are getting more intense, the workloads are getting more intense. Um, and actually those who've gone part-time report uh, much better work-life balance and satisfaction and everything, better well-being. The ones who, who are working full-time are really struggling, so there is this, this expectation of, of, in a way, those who've gone part-time are quite protected in, you know, I can only work these hours, so they can't be overloaded. Um, and I think one of the, the, one of the real drawbacks of the right to request is that it led to a very individualised ad hoc approach. So the assumption was still that there's this full-time standard norm, and then we'll make an we will have a discussion on an individual basis on whether we can make exceptions to that or tweak that. I was really, um, you know, as, as at the TUC, I know for a long time we were campaigning for the right to request to become a universal right, which we did, largely on the basis that we thought it might increase demand for this from all workers and then there would have to be collective negotiation on how work is organised um, uh, and changes to, to everybody's jobs um, and working hours. 
Um, I was really struck, there was a, a talk from a Swedish lawyer I attended a couple of years ago um, who was, when shared parental leave was being introduced and talking about the Swedish uh, experience of parental leave and how much time they have available to them up to, I think, their child is eight, massive amounts of leave, both men and women, that they can take on a flexible basis as well so they can get you know, default periods of, of reduced hours working while their children are, are young. Um, and someone was saying, how do you, how do you manage this? You know, what, what's the business reaction to this? Um, you know, isn't this really complicated, having all these people who could be asking to be off at certain times or reducing hours? Um, and he just kind of went, not really, we just overstaff. Um, and I just thought that, well, that, that, you know, that, the shock on the kind of employment lawyers, sort of, you know, who work for employers' faces, that you are saying we should overstaff um, to allow that flexibility. Um, so, you know, in terms of what, the other things, you know, I've, like I've said at the beginning, the campaign for flexible work. Uh, from an equality perspective, unfortunately, um, it's often led to uh, a focus on the flexibility part of it. Um, but the other things that I think are really important to address are working hours and workloads that aren't excessive. This is what is also very important to working parents and carers and others. Um, we have very high rates of female employment in this country, but very high rates of part-time female employment. We do really badly compared to the likes of Sweden and other places. Um, and in other places, there are many more mothers are more likely to work full time um, because it's more the demands aren't, aren't so intense. Um, and that the, the full time part time, full time man, part time woman model just entrenches gender equality and gender divisions in caring. They also want certainty and adequate notice of working hours. I've said, you know, I see this as a massive issue for doctors, the young women doctors I've come into contact with. Um, many of them um, are working, they're, they're, they've gone for what's available, which is a 60% less than full-time contract. Um, lots of them would want to work more hours, but they can't because they're not given adequate notice of hours or the, the things that are attached to doing more. Um, the ability to take time off um, for family reasons when needed is really important. And um, I spoke to him while I was still at the TUC, there was an academic who was doing work on um, women with caring responsibilities on precarious contracts. Um, and the thing, and I'd heard it in the work that we'd done at the TUC with, with women on um, these kind of contracts, is they feel they can, even when their child is sick, very sick, they feel they can't take the time off because they're going to be penalised. They're not going to get the hours the following week. They're going to lose income. Um, and also, she said, you know, interestingly, she was doing this work to look at kind of what family-friendly rights were most important to them. And they were so unaware of the rights that were available, like the right to emergency time off. Um, and when they were told about it, they, they kind of didn't use it. And I know from retail workers, they don't use this right to emergency time off because it's unpaid, because there's lack of clarity about how much time you can take off, why you can take the time off. So what they saw as their main family-friendly right that they all fell back on was the right to paid sick leave where they had it. Um, and they were, and you're going, but that's horrifying that they're taking sick leave for family reasons. They, and they're, they're possibly then being disciplined um, and penalised and not being able to progress in work. Um, 
And just generally, I think workers, and I see it as well in my new role, they want more trust from employers and control over their working hours and just recognition that they are human beings with life outside work. Um, I'm really struck in my new role um, how important work-life balance is coming through from, from members, from doctors. And there's a big theme of work of just wanting recognition that doctors are human beings. They're not just these, in, these people who are just there to serve the NHS and serve patients. They are humans too. And it's not necessarily because they're working parents and carers. It's just recognition that they are human beings and they are entitled to a life outside of work and respect for them as an individual as well. Um, so that's it, really. OK, thank you very much, then. Thank you. Can we give a little applause to both speakers? Thank you.